Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 74 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 74, Scott and I will be basically going through a smorgasbord of random philosophical ideas. Uh, we don't exactly have a super big theme for this episode, but it's lots of sort of differing philo philosophical and quizzing related concepts. And we'll kind of go down some rabbit holes, uh, at least philosophically, and see where they go. And But of course, we always give preferential treatment to listener questions and listener feedback. And we do actually have a listener question. So that goes to the very top of our agenda. And the question is as follows. Have you done any episodes on how the finish the verse slash interrogative questions are written and what to look out for when making <coughs> questions lists? Well, we have. Um, I recommend that you do a search on the, well, the, either the RSS feed or wherever you're listening to the podcast, see if you can do a search over the um, descriptions of older episodes. I'm sure we've done some discussions around how to write finish the first questions and interrogatives, but because this is a listener question, we'll talk a little bit about it again um, and maybe go into some different sorts of details. So Scott, what are your kind of thoughts on finish the verse and interrogative question writing? And then I even list, I mean, we've talked about that even in pretty recent episodes too, but let's maybe cover that as a second topic. Yep. So where to start? I know that districts treat um, these questions differently. So I call them key verse questions. So I'll finish. Um, I guess he, he said finish the verse and interrogative questions. Yeah. So I guess not, I'm talking about. And I'm not sure how those two things relate. Yeah, so well, let's talk about finish the verse questions or finish questions first. Um, but districts do different things, right? They might have a list where um, that limits the verses that these questions can come from. They may not. Um, it, you know, interdistrict meets and internationals behind the scenes have some way to write these questions on some amount of verses, but it's not published to quizzers. So in effect, there is no list for quizzers, right? And so as a quizzer, if you want to do really well and finish questions, you have to make some sort of study list and sort it alphabetically because there is an incredible amount of jumping speed that you can optimize and gain while sacrificing zero accuracy. Now, all of this requires study, of course, but, um, this is some of the quickest bang for your buck if you know a lot of verses is to um, be able to sort finished questions alphabetically and see which ones you can jump on in like a quarter syllable or a half syllable. Because there's not really any other question type that you can jump that fast on with any semblance of accuracy. But for finished questions, there are some of them you can. So it's a gr great idea to, to, to make a list um, to do that. Now, we've talked about all kinds of problems that I have with how these questions are written at various levels, um, how people do not use the finish this, finish this, and the next, finish these two um, types to their expressed intent, or calling it the expressed intent might be too strong. But um, And then, you know, there are years in internationals and probably currently where the rulebook language on verses being significant or um, standing on their own, significant to the chapter, are more or less ignored. Uh, and that definitely complicates things from a quizzer because you don't know if, whether something in the rule book is going to be followed. And the nature of this rule is such that you really can't challenge it. <laughs> um, so you just kind of have to figure out what you're going to do. And I've not been involved with coaching um, or quizzing for the last handful of years. And so I'm not exactly sure what I would recommend to a quizzer. I think I would definitely start by alphabetizing every single verse. So you need to have every single verse in um, a database program like, a, like Microsoft Excel or Google Sheets, and then you sort it alphabetically, and then you start working from there. And you might find, oh, these 14 verses in Matthew start with Jesus said. I think that those are almost guaranteed to be a finish this if they're asked as a type, which um, you're just making your best guess, right? Um, and you're kind of whittling down the list that way to making to make a list that you will study from and you have to make decisions at every point like am i going to start with the list of every verse am i going to read through the material and say i think this one's significant enough i think this one's significant enough um am i going to make a list and my friend who's quizzing is going to make a list and then we're going to compare i think there's a lot of things that you can do 
Um, and all of it is good study because you're interacting with the material you're dealing with. What's the meaning? Um, do I think this verse stands on its own? Does it need extra context? Which is a form of study, right? Uh, both for quizzing purposes and for non-quizzing purposes. You have to un- be able to understand the context of the material that you're looking at. Um, so I think those are some some advice that I have around these questions. But I would talk with a lot of people like coaches and program leaders in, in your district and people that have been to internationals in re- recent years because they will give you information like, oh, yeah – you're going to get some finish the verses that start with Jesus answered when in past years they probably would have been solely um, finish this types. You might see some of those. And I'm just, I'm just making something up now. Um, but there's a lot of information to be gained from prior experience internationals that, of course, could change year to year. Um, but it's a good source of information. Yeah, absolutely. So when you're talking about internationals, there is a bit of a wild card. Hopefully we are in a state and i believe we are in a state now where the wild cardness of what happens in internationals when it comes to this sort of stuff is being reduced it is significantly reduced already and hopefully will become even more reduced due to some efforts that are ongoing right now that i can't really talk openly about but i'm i'm very optimistic that the wildness or the unpredictability at internationals will become smaller and eventually negligible. Um, But let's look at this from the district perspective, right? Your district probably has some sort of policy or, or practices that are not particularly changing all that much. Now, in PNW, we actually are changing ever so slightly. Now, granted, we are being, you know, as is our tradition, we are being very uh, transparent and very vocal and, and very obvious about what we're doing. We're shifting. We originally had a, a published uh, key verse list and only the verses that were on that list could be uh, finish the verse questions or finish this as we marked finish this is and finish this in the next verse and so forth. Um, and we were very sort of locked into that. As a result, quizzers who studied against that, that list certainly had a f- either fairly strong, if not very, very strong advantage uh, in terms of like quizzing within PNW. We're shifting away from that where we are still actually going to have a, a, a key verse list, but it's made private, something a little bit more akin to what internationals does in terms of, you know, style and so forth. But whatever your district does it's probably going to be consistent to previous years. So what I would do is start by predicting the environment that you're going to be competing in, right? So we're probably talking about, you know, district competition levels. So kind of predict what that environment is going to be and then reverse that into developing a strategy. And then from that strategy, then go forward and and start building out these lists and so forth. And you can very quickly start to get some advantages there um, at really all levels of, of the competition, whether, you know, junior, senior, international, whatever, uh, list making is a very healthy thing. It also is healthy. I, I wouldn't re- necessarily recommend spending a, you know, a ton of time doing it as your primary activity. I think memorization should always be your primary activity, but after your memorization or in tandem with your memorization, writing questions can be a very healthy thing to do. It's um, it's not so much valuable for the finish this is and the finish the verses because those are fairly obvious and the quote questions obviously are fairly obvious. But in terms of preparing lists of, of uh, interrogative questions, I think writing some questions on verses is very, very helpful if you get into that sort of pattern where, you know, as a quizzer, you're approaching this from a memorization perspective, you're not seeing the question writing perspective. If you get yourself some experience writing questions, I think I think that can add some depth and information to your studying strategy and your prep strategy. So again, I would not recommend doing this as your, you know, first thing to do out of the gate. I would, I would focus primarily on memorization. And then once you get up to a certain point on memorization, then supplement your memorization with these other tactics. Yep. On the finish the verse questions, it does you no good if you can jump at half a syllable and know what verse it is, but not quote the whole verse correctly. It's your list work is useless at that point. So you have to, you have to be able to, to finish it right. And, um, quote the verses correctly. 
Uh, on interrogatives, I have lots of random thoughts that I actually feel pretty strongly about because interrogatives are a weird question type to specialize in because there's a ton of them, but it's a very broad type um, where like the range of how quickly stuff becomes unique and how difficult the question is in general, there's just wide ranges that make it um, – there's less that you can game via list work, right? Whereas – when it comes to multiple answers or finish the like finished this questions or CVRMAs, there's tons that you can I, I'm calling it game. Like there's a, a massive advantage for not a crazy amount of work that you can get from making that list. For interrogatives, it's not really that way. Um, but I definitely think that there are some things that you should do and some things that you shouldn't do. I think writing interrogative questions or any question. Um, any question type is a good practice for quizzers. You need to be memorizing first, but putting yourselves in the shoes of a question writer and like what makes a good question, what am I likely to be asked is very useful. Um, it gets you accustomed to, you know, what sorts of sentence structures lead to W led interrogatives, um, what sorts of sentence structures lead to reference questions. You just ask a lot of those questions, um, to yourself but when – if I'm specializing in interrogatives, like let's say I'm going to internationals and it's the only type that I'm going to jump on, um, I need to know the whole material really well. And at that point, I do want to write some questions, but um, I don't have a need to write even interrogative questions in the whole material. I think it's just kind of a practice that you should be in. Um, but it's not like – like at the end of the day, you're going to have a list and you're like, oh, there's 84 – interrogatives that could start with the and that's not even an exhaustive list it's just the list of what i think are good ones there might be less good ones but still valid ones that could start with the and you're like i, I can't really do the, anything with that information or you might find um there's only two that can start with q well you know how easily are you going to be be able to identify a q mouth shape when you're quizzing you know like it's hard like it's hard I know that when I made a list, I could see, oh, yeah, there are definitely certain letters and then mouth shapes that are very common, and I don't want to jump on those. So in addition to W, things like J, because of Jesus, TH, um, and I think R and S, there's just a ton of questions that start with those shapes. So I kind of tried to be on the lookout for those shapes, but I think you're really limited in, into the extent that you can do that. Um, so I think writing questions is good, but don't stress about like, ooh, did I get every single one? Because um, I don't think that's useful. I know that people study unique word and unique phrase lists, and I think that those can be very useful, but only if you put in a lot of work. Because I think there's a good 20 to 40% of unique words that are not going to be at the beginning of an interrogative question, like in the first syllable or two. And if they're not going to be there, then it's less crucial that you know them as a trigger, right? Because you're only going to be getting to max three syllables on an interrogative question. So if there's not going to, if the unique word occurs in the material, but it's not going to be in that um, syllable span, then you don't need to study it because it's not helping you. Um, same goes for unique phrases. There are tons of two and especially three word unique phrases that are just three random words from an awkward middle of a phrase or sentence that no question is going to start there. So if you are willing to do the work to take the list of one, two, and three unique word phrases and whittle it down to the ones that you think might be at the beginning of a question, then I think it becomes very useful because, um, in my opinion, the best interrogative quizzers are the ones that can watch their W jumps, but if they get a unique phrase, can nail it. Because the quizzers that can get a unique word and nail it are plentiful, reasonably plentiful. But the quizzers that can jump on something like um, your name, and that only occurs once and they will get it right, those are rare quizzers. And you can get it, it gives you such confidence when you can jump at two syllables and know, like, oh, it might be two random words like which of or something, but I can get it because I've studied on those unique phrases. I think that gives you a lot of confidence and you can be one of the best quizzers at internationals on them if you do that work. Yeah, I totally agree. I would also kind of throw in here. So I agree that, I mean, this feels like we're talking about a quizzing meme, um, but the idea of specializing on interrogatives, I think there is an opportunity to specialize on interrogatives, but only if your district does questions wrong. How's that? Um, so there have been districts in the past, possibly even to this day, although Scott and I have, you know, vocally, you know, made our opinions known that it's a bad 
it, it is bad to do this, but there are some district writers, district question writers, who prefer to write all of their interrogatives very, very key, very, very early and keep the questions very short. Um, so like not exclusively, but almost exclusively writing uh, within the, you know, the first word is say uh, a unique word, a globally unique word or something like that. Or, you know, a unique word or two word key phrases in the first word or two, that kind of thing. If that is the case uh, in your particular district, then I think there is a greater opportunity to specialize in interrogative questions because you can actually like limit things down to a manageable set in your list prep and actually work on on gain, gaining an advantage that way. Um, however, you know, just to be re reiterate again, um, both Scott and I are very against that practice of writing questions. I think it's very, it's a very poor way to write questions. But if you find yourself in a competition that has a question set that is like that, then it could be a viable strategy for you. Yep. But that's, that's really just moving the goalposts, right? If all interrogatives are on average easier, then there's more opportunity to specialize, but it's more opportunity for everyone. And so like the requisite amount of work that you'd have to do might, might be similar to get the same sort of advantage. Um, but I think in a relative sense, it would be a little bit less if you can, because of how much you can limit the, the types and scope of questions that are of interrogatives that will be asked to you. Um, also be on the lookout for if, um, your district or the meet that you're at might have some conventions about how they generate question sets. I know in the past there have been meets where once you heard two or three W interrogatives, you knew that there was not going to be another one. Um, so like attention to that sort of thing can can give you an edge. But again, that's also something that we're against because it's an artificial constraint on um, – it's artificial constraint, right? It's not random. Yeah, and it's not reliable, right? So like if you – I don't, I don't like those particular artificial things because if you get used to them at your district level and then move to a different type of competition, either an inter-district or an internationals or something along those lines, uh, that advantage evaporates, right? And it makes a lot of sense, let's say, depending upon what the convention might be, it may make a lot of sense to actually prep for that and target it at your district level. But then when you exit your district uh, or, or, you know, work cross district, that, that work that you've put in basically evaporates. And that's not a, that's not a great uh, scenario to be in. It is not. So on to our next topic it is quiz masters and processing multiple threads um, concurrently. So this is something that I was just kind of wondering about is what is going through a quiz master's head when they ask questions and listen to the quiz the quizzer answering. So I guess I didn't really have a good way of thinking about this, but it is my belief that a lot of quiz masters ask a question and then while the quizzer is answering, they are... Um, assembling the information that they're they're processing what or they're listening to what the quizzer is saying to them, but then at the end of the thirty seconds, they then start thinking about what they need to rule on. Um, and I don't know, I can't remember how this arose. Like if I was trying to explain why why some quiz masters, it seems like they'll take ninety seconds on seemingly simple rulings, and um, I wonder if it's kind of compartmentalized or chunked like that, where they're just gathering the information that the quizzer is giving them, and then 30 seconds are done, they're like, okay, this is what they said, what am I going to rule? I don't know, do you this, want to respond to that before I continue? Well, this, if I remember the the origin point of the topic, this was a conversation you were having with your wife, right? About, um, you know, sort of like a multi, like a, thinking of, of the quiz master's brain as being multi-threaded versus singular threaded. Was that, is that kind of in line with what you're thinking? Yeah, definitely kind of like a linear thought. Because I know like when I'm asking a reference question, say a CVR, and let's say it's um, the word of let's yeah, the word of whom. Um, when the quizzer jumps, I am already looking up like what if they provide me word of whom or the word of, let's say it's the word of the Lord, the word of the whom. Um, what if they say the, the word of what? Um, like, Will I be accepting any of those answers? Will I be saying again for some reason? I, you know, but I don't know if other quizmasters aren't thinking of it like that. They're just waiting for the quizzer to tell them something, 
and then they evaluate it then. Yeah, and I'm definitely more on the, you know, the multi-threaded side of the fence. Um, I'm, I think part of it is really just so that I can be able to respond appropriately in a particular situation. There are, there are definitely times, like almost every quiz, where I will be thinking in my head, okay, they didn't say that word. Is that, but they, they use a synonym. Do I accept that or not accept that? I'm never going to, you know, immediately count them correct. Well, that's not true. I will probably not count them correct until their 30 seconds are done, but I may make a judgment because I want to give them the opportunity to go back and, you know, change the synonym to the actual word. But I may be thinking of like, is that synonym close enough that I will count it correct or not? Even prior to the quizzer, like finishing out the rest of the, you know, the provision of information that they need to, to be counted correct. Um, just because I don't want to, I don't want to, be thinking in my head like, okay, do I, do I evaluate this on the back end or the front end? And again, it's, it's, it's so that I can respond more quickly with, uh, either, uh, you know, prompts if those prompts are necessary, um, or that I can just rule within a, you know, a second or two after the end of the question. Um, it just seems more efficient to me. I think it is more efficient. Um, but I, I guess I'm just curious how, cause I think there are certain question types like reference questions where, a quiz master has to be processing multiple things at once. And I think most quiz masters have optimized for that, right? Because you have to be prompting for the for the reference question right when they finished the required material. Whereas um, I guess you do have to say quote is complete and what is – you do have to say quote is complete at the correct spot. But there's, I think, less precision required on all other quiz master prompts than the what is your question and quote is complete ones. Um, but I just wonder if there are other areas of quiz mastering, or I guess even on those, there are times where a quiz master's timing on prompting for a reference question is poor and slow. And I wonder if it's more due to like them catching up to what the quizzer is saying and parsing it rather than them not knowing the rules around reference questions, you know? Right. I think you probably are correct. Um, anyway, what, I know. I mean, I, on situation questions, those were always the most difficult for me as a quiz master because I had to hold so much in my head at once. I might have to say again or more. I might have to prompt you for a pronoun clarification in the quotation or in the answer. Um, I will have to say quote is complete at some point. Um, and the timing of those things matters a ton. So especially when the quizzer is on the quote portion, I have to like if they say something that's not verbatim correct – I have to decide if it's close enough immediately because I have to say quote is complete because otherwise I'm stealing their time from them to complete the answer portion. Right. And you also have to you have to do that also in the context of saying, is their answer close enough that it isn't going to be challenged? Right. You're 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 evaluating the question, the quote, the material. You're evaluating what the quizzer said and you're evaluating possible challenges that may or may not show up because based on when you say quote is complete, you're essentially saying you've given me enough that you can move on, right? Because the last thing you want to do is say quote is complete, have them move on and then be like, actually, I kind of want you to get better, right? Like by saying quote is complete, you are, you are saying, I, at this moment in time, believe you are correct in the quote sufficient to you know, answer that portion of the question. And now you may move on to this other portion. Right. Um, but if they're not word perfect, could that open the question up to a challenge? Right. And if the challenge happens, uh, it's one thing to say like, well, they had, they said this, the actual answer is this, that's different. I think you should count them incorrect. But in reality, the quiz master could have, could look at that and say, well, do I count them incorrect or do I toss the question because I inappropriately, uh, told them their quote was complete, right? There's all of that happens sort of simultaneously. Uh, yeah, it can be a mess. Mm -hmm. So I guess, I mean, I think I am definitely tooting my own horn here because I'm saying like situation questions are where I'm cognitively almost at my breaking point, but I wonder if that breaking point for other quiz masters is earlier, you know, like, um, is that why you'll see poor timing on quiz master prompts or a question will finish and they will take 30, 60, 90 120 seconds to make a ruling that seems simple. 
Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I think I think calling questions complete on situation questions is the highest cognitive load. It's, you know, last year we didn't have sits, so it's hard for me to think further back and actually pull that in. Um, but uh, putting sits aside for a moment, probably reference questions are the next one that comes up um, in terms of like, you know, calling for the question if the quizzer is quoting in a particularly strange way or is quoting um, not quite backwards, but they miss certain words. When when I call for a question, I'm sort of like, and this is actually kind of an interesting dilemma here, right? So if a quizzer is quoting a reference question, they, they use a synonym that's not really a synonym, like it's kind of a synonym, but it, it's slightly different meaning. Uh, and then, and then like, do you you get to the point where like, okay, they've provided the material, they're quoting fairly quickly in reverse, but they've replaced a word that could potentially be challenged. Do you call for their question at that point? Like, like, what do you do? Yes. So you do have to make that call very quickly, right? If the content that they are talking about is part of the question and the answer, you have to make that snap decision of have they provided enough to be able to be prompted by me. Right. And if you don't prompt them, it can lead them to being technically unable to actually get the, 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 the question correct, right? So like, it's almost like you, you want to be able to say, stop here, say, say it again, and then I'll call for your question, which of course you can't do. Correct. Like if maybe, let's say words three through 10 of a sentence are part of the question, the answer, and they're quoting those words, um, maybe backwards, and they haven't said something correct yet, they may continue on to words one and two um, and then later correct something in three to ten and get prompted. And then they're kind of having to consider words one and two um, before they give your before they give you their question. Now, as a quizzer, you could do that mental work to say like, hey, if I if I know I provided one and two correctly and I wasn't prompted, it means that I have something wrong somewhere else. Now, that doesn't rule out the question starting at words one and two, but it might you know, might push you away from it. Right. Well, and I mean, that's not something that's challengeable, right? So like where you are prompted is not challengeable. Um, so they could challenge you saying, um, I think I, I gave enough to be prompted. Sure. But here's, here's the argument then. Um, let's say that there's a quiz master who's particularly slow about prompting, right? And the quizzer is reciting the information very rapidly and the quiz master is doing their best job to, you know, keep, you know, kind of read backwards and do it in chunks and so forth. And they prompt the quizzer, but a little bit slow. The quizzer then changes their their question that they provide to match the prompt, which itself was slow. They have to be counted incorrect and they can't challenge. Oh, I would challenge all day long on that. You prompted me at a bad time. Absolutely. That, but that's it, a that's a massive error on the quiz master, and I don't care if you're not able to prompt in a timely manner. I challenge that all day long, um, especially if I had any semblance of a pause. Yeah, but what if you didn't have a pause, right? And to what degree of a pause do you need, right? Like, I'm I'm imagine quizzers can go. I mean, when you're reciting something from memory, especially if you have it extremely well memorized, and it took 20 seconds for you to to remember where the verse started, right? So you know you only have 10 seconds left, but you're like, oh, I recognize where this is. I totally have this verse memorized. And you blitz like crazy, like lightning speed. And the quiz master is doing their best to keep up with you, but is like a half second behind on the prompt. I mean, how do you, how can you rule on that? Like, as a, like, like certainly as a quiz, as a quizzer, absolutely challenge. Absolutely. What harm can it possibly do to challenge? But as a quiz master, can you accept that challenge? Um, well, we're obviously in subjective territory. And I know that when I was a quizzer, especially my last couple of years, I was always quoting backwards when I had the time and I made sure to to pause and you kind of have to when you're quoting backwards because you're going phrase by phrase. Um, But I would not challenge that the quiz master prompted at the incorrect moment unless I was really confident that whether or not I paused sufficiently would be contested, right? I'd I'd want to be very sure that that wouldn't be part of the discussion. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Because 
if the closer and closer I get to not having paused, um, the more that becomes part of it. And at the end of the day, the onus is on the quizzer to pause, to make themselves heard volume-wise and articulation-wise. And so if I'm going to challenge that the quiz master prompted me in an incorrect timing on any of the prompts, I'm, I need to make sure that I, I had enough of a pause that that's not going to be contested. Yeah, interesting. Well, let's see here. Next one is, what are the most important attributes of an amazing quiz master or of other officials? Um, this could go a lot of places, and we've probably talked about a lot of these points already. Do you want to pick a place to start and just start there, or do you want me to uh, take it off? Yeah, it feels like we talked about this recently, too. Like, you know, in terms of quiz mastery, uh, I mean, a lot of this is sort of like do the opposite of the things that we took umbrage with in the last few episodes, right? Um, so, like, review the rule book before the quiz meet. Um, get a good night's sleep. Have, you know, make sure that you are, you know, practiced on the way the particular environment is going to operate. Make sure you understand and are very comfortable with the physical equipment, like the seats or whatever, you know, that kind of thing. Sometimes you can't do that, you know, if, uh, you know, a huge amount of time ahead, you know, if you're a visiting quiz master, that kind of thing. But when you're, you know, when you show up to a meet, um, go to your quiz room and get your room set up and get yourself very comfortable with the equipment long as as early as possible right so like if you're completely ready to go then go outside and socialize and talk with people and absolutely you know relax and 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 be social uh but don't do that before you're ready you know that that sort of thing so there's all that sort of prep work there's making sure that your pacing is reliably consistent right not super fast don't you know blitz through questions don't try to squeeze in extra words by going faster in hopes that that will help the quizzers it's do it doesn't it does the exact opposite slow down remember that you're gonna you know you're gonna ultimately read faster than what you normally talk um and you probably actually want to be reading slightly slower than you normally talk um you just want to make sure that whatever but whatever you do uh make it consistent um and be able to reduce the bleed as much as possible. I still struggle with my bleed, um, but it's like, you know, looking for ways that you can constantly be improving. And of course, this goes on to the other officials as well, right? Whether you're an answer judge or a scorekeeper or some other official, a statistician, what what is something that you can do to improve your performance by 1% this particular uh, quiz, right? Always be looking for those sort of incremental ways of improvement. Um, never phone in anything. So yeah, I mean, if just... And it, honestly, it just feels like I'm taking the umbragey things that we talked about in the last couple episodes and basically inverting them. And that's what makes an amazing quiz master. Sure. Um, if I have to boil it down more, I think the best quiz masters um, set a really good tone and pace for the entire quiz room. So it's an encouraging, but it's always on schedule and keeping things moving. And so the accepting of the responsibility of all of that, like, you are the ultimate authority in the room, but you're also trying to be humble and do your best job and keep everything moving, but not rush through everything. Like it's a kind of a big balance game that um, I think it's a lot asked of a quiz master. And I think that being really good at that is one of the chief um, characteristics of an awesome quiz master. I think another one is the pacing. So just being absolutely consistent in everything that you're doing is so important because there's no mitigating for that, right? If you're inconsistent, like there's no way to fix it, like in the moment, like it's just bad. Whereas if you maybe are very new to quiz mastering and you don't know all the rules, well, egregious mistakes that you make in that respect, like can be fixed via challenges and answer judge, like other, like there are ways to make sure that just because you don't know a rule doesn't mean that everyone's going to have a terrible experience, you know, but if your, your pacing is inconsistent, people will have a bad experience. So, I mean, I think those are like two of the biggest ones is like just command and running of the room and pacing. And then after that, it would just be a willingness to learn and always wanting to keep trying, you know, after that, I don't know, it's kind of all gravy after that. Um, go ahead. 
Well, I was going to say a, a positive attitude, um, but more than a positive attitude, a friendly and encouraging attitude, right? So, I mean, depending upon the context of the quiz, the quizzers can be walking into your room fairly stressed out, um, maybe a little bit sleep deprived. They're, you know, they're all wanting to do well and, you know, being really super stern uh, is somewhat it, it, at best it's off-putting and more likely can actually cause quizzers to kind of fold up uh and you don't want to do that right so you know be friendly be encouraging don't be like overly i don't know how to say it not overly friendly that's not really the right word um don't be overly jovial like like it, it you know do keep a certain level of seriousness about the 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 conduct of of what goes on in your room take it seriously encourage everyone else to take it seriously but be friendly about it and be welcoming to quizzers and have conversations that kind of put the quizzers at ease and make them feel comfortable with you uh and that kind of removes a certain layer of the layers of stress in the stress cake that the quizzers are going to have when they walk in. Here's a funny story. So I keep stats on PNW uh, district meets. And so I could say like for our nine or seven quiz masters over a four year period, this is the accuracy in each of, for each of those quiz masters in prelim quizzes because I thought that that was a pretty equal sample size and like I found that I had the lowest accuracy in my room and another quiz master had a very like quite high accuracy and so I I I um, asked a bunch of quizzers who had recently graduated like hey do you think like do you have any ideas of what this could be the cause of this and they all had lots of ideas right they're like okay so this other quiz master they definitely do rule easier than you do and it's probably too lenient um, so that was one thing, but then they said they're also usually in the smallest quiz room, which is way more comfortable than you, Scott. You're in the biggest quiz room always, and it's usually very intimidating to quiz in. And also, you're scary, right? <laughs> so it was—I I don't know—it was helpful for me to see, like, oh, like if I'm scary and it's hurting accuracy, like I don't want to be that way, you know? And it's just—it's interesting to see all of the different factors that can go into a quizzer's experience. You know, like room size being one of them. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. And I mean, it certainly, yeah, I mean, if you're in room one, uh, you know, traditionally this the main sanctuary of a, of a larger church uh, and, you know, everything is very formal and there's, you know, 100 people watching you. That's a very different experience than being in a preschool room where they've been able to shove in, you know, 14 chairs in the back Um and, you know, the quizzers may actually outnumber the spectators. Absolutely. Um, I think when you're talking about scorekeepers, I think attention to detail is the biggest trait of a really good scorekeeper. It is helpful if you know the rules, but at the end of the day, there aren't that many scoring rules. And when a quizzer, when a scorekeeper makes a mistake on one of the weird, rarer ones, like, oh, these two teams tied for second with less than 50 points each and they didn't get the team points exactly right, to me it's like, eh, that's like a really, sm has almost no impact on anything, right? But scorekeepers that miss things that they know, but they just miss them because they don't have the attention to detail, um, can be a big derailment to a quiz meet. Right, yeah, and this, and, and this sort of goes across the board. Attention to detail, taking your job seriously, looking for constantly, constantly looking for ways to improve. Um, this is sort of a, it, it works for all officials in all roles and really works for quizzers as well and really works for humans in life. It does. And, and then for answer judges, it's helpful to think about what are things that the quiz master has, has to do that I don't, right? Like the quiz master has to prompt. They have to prompt and then they have to rule. Um, you don't have to do those things as an answer judge. So you can ignore prompts, but that allows you to focus on different things. So you can, you're an extra set of ears for a quizzer quoting really fast through a keyverse question. Or maybe you can start looking up something that a quizzer said to see if they're definitively out of context. Uh, or things, things like that. So Because you're, you're kind of this added, you're an, an added official but you don't have to do a lot of the things that the quiz master has to, like reading the question and prompting during. All right. Well, what's next? What's next? Oh, this is a really short one. So, like, we 
I think in our worst practice, well, in our worst rules, we just went crazy on the rule book. But like, here's another random thing, which is the beginning of the rule book defines the material for each year, right? And it says Luke, excluding 324 to 38 and chapters 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and all this stuff. And then it gets to Matthew and it says excluding chapters 13, 23, 24, and 25, to which someone asks, oh, so does that mean we do the genealogy, the first 18 verses of chapter 1? And so then we realized, oh, no, that's just something that the rule book is wrong about, you know? And it just, we need extra eyes and attention to detail when it comes to the rule book. Because something like this, that is literally 100% objective, right? No one will, there's no argument to be had or discussion to be had. Like, just get it right. It, it should never be wrong. Yeah, totally agreed. Well, so now let's kind of move into more, I guess, philosophically things. So, Scott, what do you got here for us? So I'm going to jump to a quote that you said, because um, we talk a lot about objective versus subjective rules in the rule book. Difficulties of um, applying subjective rules, but then also um, the benefits of maybe having a subjective rule. And something that you said is you think that subjective rules are often born from trying to define something accurate to an ideal first and then iterating towards objective rather than defining something objectively first and then iterating towards ideal. And did you want to expand on that a little bit before I weigh in? Well, let's see. I'm not sure how to expand on it. And it's just, I, I, I'm not even really sure. I don't, I don't hard and fast believe this, but I suspect that it is true, right? I have no evidence to, to definitively say like, this is a hill I'm willing to die on, but it's more just sort of, I suspect it, it tends to be true that we tend to look at, we tend to, when, when there are rules that are subjective, right? I believe we say, let's have this rule that is knowingly subjective because to create the objective rule would be really hard. And so we don't do it. Right. And so we start with subjective rules and we try to define those subjective rules in such a way that they get as close to the ideal case as possible. And then we say, yeah, but then it's up to the discretion of the quiz master, the answer judge, whatever, to interpret this rule it toward the ideal uh, in a subjective way rather than taking the the time and the effort and the pain right to come up with an objective rule. And understanding that the first iteration of that objective rule is probably going to be further away from what we would consider to be ideal, but at least it's objective, and then we iterate closer to the ideal. Does that make sense? It, it makes perfect sense, but um, this might be unfair for me to bring up in this way, but wouldn't you say that um, requiring unique words for an answer to be correct is an example of starting with something objective that we can hopefully iterate closer to an ideal in the future? Yeah, I would. But the thing is, it's not something that was ever intended to be iterated on, right? It is, I would agree that you're right. That is something that was designed to be objective for something that is not there. And it's far from ideal. And I would be okay with doing that if that was sort of iteration one and the expectation is we're going to be iterating on that to get it closer and closer to an ideal right now i would also agree that it's a it's a terrible first iteration right like just because something is objective doesn't mean it's it's necessarily good right you can have objective rules that are just bad right um, but by and large, I think objective rules are generally better than subjective rules, all other things being equal, right? But that being said, you can have a rule that says if you jump up and down three times and spin around once, you're automatically counted correct. It's like, well, that's objective, but it's a terribly stupid rule. Um, so, you know, I... It, just because something's objective doesn't make it, you know, the gold standard. But I think it, being able to say... I think it's important to be able to say there is an there is a way to define what we want objectively. We don't have it yet, and we shouldn't just give up and go with something subjective and wave our hands and say it's really hard. We should say, no, let's actually take on the challenge of defining what is really hard objectively, right? Or, or to define it objectively, which is hard, take on that burden. And be willing to approach it sort of in an iterative fashion. 
this is causing some of my thoughts to crystallize because I don't think you would find any opposition. Like I think it would be unanimous that everyone would agree that objective is better, all things else being equal. But it's those other things that people are choosing to opt to um, prioritize over objectivity in some cases, probably chief among them being what constitutes correct, you know, specifically on an interrogative question. Mm-hmm. Um, because at any moment where you say like, oh, it has to be word perfect, you know, just like a finisher code question. Well, boom, you have your objectivity, but it's probably going to be largely demotivating and deterring to, to memorization for a large percentage of quizzers, right? Just because we right. don't need to require that standard on that specific question type. And then you can go steps in between, kind of like we have with the one um, unique word required. And I don't know, I think some of my crystallization right now is that when you when there is subjectivity in the rule book, I think it's it exists because, um, oh, I don't know how to say it, I think whenever there is subjectivity and we make a move towards objectivity without the promise of iteration, it's almost it's almost solely an attempt to prevent bad quiz mastering. Yes, I, I agree that's true. I, I, I completely agree that that's true, but I don't think that makes going objective ultimately the worst case, right? Or, or, or a bad, a a bad option. Like, I think ideally what you want is iterate towards increasingly ideal objective rules. And like you, you have those rules there to basically keep things consistent, I think, between rooms, right? And between districts and so forth. Um, if you've got a bad quiz master, you should, get the quiz master to be better, not by making the rule book different. Yes. And that is definitely ideal. But I, yeah, I think if anyone has an experience with a quiz master that they deem to be poor and have no ability to provide feedback or see a change, then the only resort is going to be changing the rule book. Sure. And the thing is, I'm not particularly against the idea of defining objective standards for what constitutes a good quiz master you know, and, and saying, okay, you have to actually conform to these standards, right? As long as those standards can be defined objectively, any sort of subjective stuff would, to me, is like, well, that doesn't belong in the rule book. That belongs in a sort of a, a best practices document or a guidelines document or a, you know, hey, if you're a quiz master, try to do this document, um, which I think is a good thing, right? So like one of the, the things we were talking about is try to have a friendly, you know, not jovial, but friendly, outgoing, welcoming attitude. Well, how on earth do you f- define that objectively, right? I, I, wouldn't want to ever go there, right? Um, because that's going to be different for each quiz master. And I think it's fine to be different for every quiz master. But to me, that is not a rule. That's a guideline. It's a, it's a recommendation, you know, that kind of thing. It's an encouragement rather than something that is in the rules. The rules to me need to be objective. Interesting. I, cause I think this is probably going off on a tangent, but I could probably come up with a decently sized handful of quiz masters that if given a rule book that had no semblance of a deity rule and very little semblance of what a valid reference question was beyond um, the same type um, and a few other things, like maybe not even a whole lot of definition of about correct answers um, besides um, it contains the material requested or something like that, I think I could come up with a pretty large handful of quiz masters who without those things would run their quizzes in a way that would be very consistent without a lot of complaints. Yeah, that that's very true, right? I mean, World was a great example of that. Early World, I, I don't know where it, it progressed to because the rulebook changed over time, but the rule, the World rules were very simple. They were very thin, and a whole lot of what happened at World was, well, this is just how we do it, and it was very tribal in the sense of just tribal knowledge, you know, kind of kind of thing. Um, and, you know, I liked World, and I have a lot of respect for World, but that was always kind of something that stuck on me as, as a problem with World. I think there are, like, you and I, and Jeremy, and Heather, and Jonathan, and David, and a bunch of other Quizmasters, we could literally take the rule book as it stands and burn it, erase every copy and every word from the surface of planet Earth, and we could all go to a quiz meet and run a quiz 
and our quiz mastery would be very, very equivalent, right? Like it would be very close. Like the, our rulings would be virtually the same, right? That mm -hmm. doesn't mean we shouldn't have an objective rule book. I think the point of an objective rule book is not to ensure that like, say, Griffin and Scott agree on certain, you know, interpretations of rules or, or implementations of rules, although it is there for some of that. I think the bigger thing for a rule book is ensuring the next generation of quiz masters uh, does it consistently. Yeah. And I, I definitely see that value, right? Because when I see quiz masters that I would deem to be poor or don't know the rule book, I don't think they're out here with like malice in their hearts. It's just, you know, which um, no amount of rules in a rule book can guard against that being a bad, uh, you know, a bad situation, right? I just think that a lot of rules exist so that everyone else has like a mechanism to make sure that it's like these, at least these things are followed, even if someone doesn't know what they're doing. <laughs> right. Sure. 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 Um, I think that was, yeah. Cause I, cause I definitely think that some subjectivity, especially I think around correct answers has to exist. Um, but that doesn't mean, I don't know. I just thought it was an interesting thought exercise to, can we define something completely objectively and iterate towards an ideal? And what does that look like? You know, like if, if you had a group of people doing this, you know, can you handle a, a slight change to the the wording of a correct answer like every month, you know, <laughs> over the course of right, a year right. and a half? And it, it, it is a little bit different from software where if a different menu button shows up, your your users aren't going to riot or something, you know, or be completely flummoxed. Nec I mean, maybe maybe they would in some cases. But um, do you want to discuss anything about uh, abstraction? Um, or levels of definition as it applies to an optimal sort of rulebook? Well, I would love to because in our show notes here, you have a Dykstra quote. And I love, you know, reading Dykstra quotes because the dude was totally brilliant. Um, and, you know, obviously, you know, a computer science of the highest order. I'm trying to figure out how his quote that you have here actually relates to anything in quizzing. Um, and I wish I, I, I vaguely remember that we talked about this quote that includes the word vague, but I don't remember exactly the context. Yes. Cause I think I was saying, mm, I wish I could know where we were talking about it so I could search it. But I mean, I think I was, I was saying like the more that you try to generalize something, the more subjective that it gets. And I think you were trying to argue oh, the opposite. Yes. And so, I, yeah. So when you say that, I, I definitely disagree with that. I think I think generalization of something doesn't a generalization of something does not force it to be subjective. I think it makes it harder to have an objective rule, generally speaking. Right. I, not all the time, but I think say in a majority of cases, being more general tends to make it harder to be objective, right? But it doesn't make it impossible. And I would go back to something you were saying earlier in the rule book. Like I, you were saying something along the lines of, and correct me if I, I'm misquoting you here, but you said something along the lines of like, in terms of a uh, the concept of a correct answer, you were saying something has to be subjective in the rule book to be able to encompass that definition. And I don't think that's true. I think it's hard and, and, in, and it might be very hard to actually have an objective definition of what is correct, but I believe that it is entirely possible to have something that's, uh, you know, objective, right? And a great example of that is software. All software is objective. There is nothing in software that's subjective. It only appears to be subjective in certain cases based on, you know, our human perception through the UI and the UX, but literally it's all just ones and zeros. Everything is very, very objective, you know, at the actual software layer. So we should maybe actually instead of talking about Dijkstra, we should probably actually read the quote. So let me read the quote and let's kind of maybe draw this back in. So the, qu uh, the quote from Dijkstra is as follows. The purpose of abstraction is not to be vague, but to create a new semantic level in which one can be absolutely precise. Yeah. Now that I think about it, I can see what you're saying. This is just not how I thought about it. You know, like I usually think about it like I I'm precise when I say I want to play baseball. If I say I want to play ball, then you know less about what I want to do. Right. That's true. But, and, and of course you saying baseball does not tell me all the rules about baseball, right? But it is being very precise. If 
I know if there is one rule book of rules for baseball that is very precise and very objective, right? Um, you saying, I want to play baseball tells me it, at a very high level of abstraction, ex a very objective set of preci precise rules, right? Um, very similarly, like us saying the 2021 uh, CMA rule book, like I want to do quizzing and I want to quiz according to the 2021 version of the CMA rule book. That provides a a very high level of abstraction to something that is very objective, hopefully, and very precise. Interesting. I think I'm starting to catch on. Because <laughs> <laughs> there really aren't many areas that I think subjectivity needs to be there um, for, you know, for my ideal state of the rule book. Because I've definitely come around to context not needing to exist at all i think if context exists i think it should be in a in a subjective manner you know um when it comes to what is the the standard for a correct um reference question i think that would be something to really dive into because i feel like it's been talked to death and everyone knows the roughly two sides and they're both like extremely valid and kind of at odds you know um Anyway, I'm just trying to think of the areas of the rule book that have some level of subjectivity to them. Because a lot of them right. don't, you know, like when a quiz master can prompt and a lot of the, de the definitions are on types. Like there's just there's not subjectivity, which is nice. Right. And I would just go back to my my thesis, my theory, um, unproven as it may be, that every subjective rule uh, we can accomplish the same thing with an objective rule and it will be better because it is objective, but it may not be easy to derive the objective rule. Yep. That but makes the same sense. Thing, and the same thing, the exact same thing could be said about software, right? Um, you, you know, the, the sort of the stereotypical quintessential, not quintessential, but the stereotypical example of the marketing guy coming over and saying something vague and very subjective and waving his hands. And it's up to the computer scientist to translate that into objective code because code can't be subjective, right? Um, and sometimes that means going back to the marketing guy and, you know, questioning him and saying like, well, explain yourself a little bit more and you can't have both A and B simultaneously, you know, pick one of these things, you know, that kind of stuff. But ultimately there is an objective answer and we, you know, thus we have software that works. Have you seen the video, Griffin, of a software engineer father with his two kids, a boy and a girl, and he asks each of them to write him code in the form of handwritten instructions on a piece of paper for how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and then he will execute them. I have not, but I am. I, I want to Google this immediately and watch it. I, I will find it because I think you 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 might have your kids do this within ten minutes. <laughs> I just about might. <laughs> it sounds right, like but but that's like the, the perfect illustration of like computers can't interpret what we provide them. They simply run instructions, and therefore the instructions are literal and objective every time. And yet we do amazing things with computers every day. Yeah. So I mean, do you think that? So here's another question, like a computer literally, well, I mean, ignoring some some advancements, but like a computer can't think on its own, right? It's going to be execute the instructions that you give it. Do you think it is, um, we're not taking advantage of the fact that we're dealing with humans if we're trying to make something um, as objective that a computer would be able to handle it when we don't have to have only a computer handle it? Yeah, so yes, when you decide that the subjectivity is okay because of the tribal sharing of knowledge, right? But the point of the rule book is to provide something that expands the tribe, right? And, and you can expand the tribe in a number of different ways, but I think the ideal rule book, now, and, and of course there's a difference between the ideal rule book and a, it's good enough, right? So the 2018 CMA rule book, yes, we've had our umbragey, you know, comments about certain sections. And I think those are certainly valid, of course, because we thought of them, but it, it is more or less good enough, right? I think there's a huge sea of possible improvements. 
And so like the, the difference between good enough and better or good enough and ideal, although I don't think we would ever get to ideal, but the, the difference between good enough and better is the reduction of cost of usage of the rule book. And there's a couple of different ways that, that we incur costs. And one of them, which is not very well considered, at least in my opinion, uh, I don't see it being very well considered in Quizzingdom, is the fact that the rule book can be used as an evangelism tool, a, a way to grow quizzing, right? And the closer we get to an ideal objective rule book, the lower the cost of evangelism will be. I think that is a great point because, I mean, I talk all the time about the rules that I think are terrible. And if you asked me to, like, how often does this happen? You know, it would be very infrequently, you know? And even at a very important meet like internationals, oh, over 12 prelims, a lot of Quizmaster warts or rulebook warts or question writing warts kind of get um, flushed out in the wash um, and doesn't result in really egregious outcomes. But um, that is ignoring other potential costs of having um, a less than ideal rulebook, one of which is evangelism, right? And just ability for somebody new to pick it up and be willing to pick it up and get up to speed on things that um, are poorly written or get into a competition and be competitively behind the eight ball for things because they um, organically have been difficultly and arcanely written over over the years. You know, those are those are all costs that are uh, more or less hidden. Right. Indeed. Well, with that, we should probably close up this smorgasbord of uh, quizzing philosophy. But uh, Scott was able to find the link to the YouTube video. So I will include that link in the show notes uh, so that we can all have enjoy the hilarity that will ensue. And I very likely will probably have one, if not both of my kids, start doing this challenge uh, within five minutes of concluding this episode. So with all of that said, we do want to remind everybody that if you disagree with us in any regard, and even if you have, you know, something that you agree with us on, or you have a listener question of any kind, we would very much like to hear from you. Listener questions always go to the front of the line. And if you disagree with us, your disagreement will actually go to the front of the front of the line. Uh, so we very much want to hear from you. Uh, please email us at iq at cbqz.org. And you can follow us on Twitter. Our our account is at Inside Quizzing. And if you have not done so but yet, you can also join the Bible Quizzing Slack forum and you can follow us and chat with us in somewhat near time-ishness in the Inside-Quizzing channel. And with all that said, I will thank you all for listening and thank you, Scott. Happy listening, everybody.